Hello to all you travelers out there on the road to evidence-based literacy instruction. I'm Kate Wynn, classroom teacher and host of IDA Ontario's podcast, Reading Road Trip. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to be bringing you episode seven of our second season. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast from the traditional land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe. We are grateful to live here and thank the generations of First Nations people for their care for and teachings about the earth. We also recognize the contributions of Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples in shaping our community and country. Along with this acknowledgement and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, we'd like to amplify the work of an Indigenous author. And this week we are sharing Mouse Celebrates the Winter Solstice by Terry Mack, illustrated by Bill Helene. It is winter. The land lies still, quiet, and stark beneath a blanket of snow. The tiny footprints of a mouse can be seen in the light of the moon. Wrapped in the quiet and there in the bleak, there stood a wise mouse preparing to speak. The words that mouse chose were from many years past. She spoke them into the cold night air. So begins the enchanting story of a very special winter solstice celebration. Author Terry Mack and artist Bill Helene have collaborated to bring us this story of strength, friendship, and celebration. The lyrical text and engaging illustrations will appeal to readers of all ages. Add this book to your home or classroom library today. And now, on with the show. I am really excited about our guest this week here on Reading Road Trip, Clara Maria Fiorentini. She is a lecturer in initial teacher education at Marino Institute of Education, Dublin, specializing in literacy and early childhood education. Formerly a primary school teacher, Clara also provides ongoing professional development for primary teachers and early childhood educators in the areas of literacy, children's literature, playful pedagogy, and school transitions. Clara is currently in the final year of her PhD research, where she is studying current trends in Irish preschool literacy practices at Trinity College Dublin. Clara has been an executive committee member of the Literacy Association of Ireland for the past five years and is the incoming president of the association for 2024. She's been the face behind the popular Irish teaching blog, claramariafiorentini.com, since 2014. A proud read-aloud advocate, Clara is passionate about the use of high-quality children's literature in the classroom to support engaging literacy instruction and the meaningful contextualization of literacy skills across the primary years. That all sounds so wonderful. We are thrilled to have you here with us. Welcome, Clara. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm delighted to be here. I reached out to you because I saw your amazing slides for a presentation that you did on the novel in the primary classroom. And we're going to dig really deeply into that here today. But I know that primary in Ireland means something a little different than primary does here in Ontario. So first, can we just clarify what age range are you speaking about when you say primary? Yes, so primary school in Ireland um, is when children are the school going age up until sixth class. So it's eight years of primary school. So usually from five to 12 years, um, we have junior infants and senior infants, and then we move on to first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth class. Um, Literacy is broken into four different stages, stages one uh, to four. So stages one is the infants, um, stage two is first and second, stage three is third and fourth, and stage four is fifth and sixth. In the past couple of years, well, I suppose the past decade, especially, we've had significant redevelopment of our early childhood education. So due to the introduction of two free preschool years, um, 96% of children in Ireland now attend preschool, which means that our school starting age is is 
increasing. You know, children were usually very young starting school in Ireland, maybe just turned four, some even three in the in the month of September just to get bums on seats. Um, but now um, our infants are, you know, getting those two years of preschool. So they're at least five usually starting school. There's very, very few children four now. But that not or that novel webinar that I was um hosting that you happen to be at, which I just find mind blowing. Um that that was pitched at stages three and four, so third to sixth class. But that's not to say obviously you can't use novels with younger children as well. Great. One of your slides was just packed with the benefits of using novels with classes in this age range. Can you just share some of those benefits? Sure. Um, I always say that these lists aren't exhaustive, though. Um, but I suppose when I'm talking about using novels, I'm talking about teachers using them to their own advantage to teach and contextualize so many of those key literacy skills. We know that continuum is so, so broad. Um, I feel that as teachers, we can be really, really good at teaching the, the skills, but often it's the meaningful application of the skills that can be lacking. I think it's Wiley Blevins that says that it's in the, the application where the learning sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that a literature-rich curriculum has been shown to improve reading and writing skills so we can use all our talk and discussion around the novel as the springboard into lots of things like building the children's background knowledge their content knowledge but also helping build that reading motivation as well because they're getting the experience where they're they're finishing a text from start to finish as opposed to just snippets of text and we can use novels obviously to expose the children to high quality sophisticated and academic um, vocabulary but also really dive into the, you know, the word study there as well. Um, so many things that we can do in terms of writing skills. I, I mentioned dialogue already, but also, I suppose, exposing the children to, to opportunities to build and develop their little imaginations as well. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, trying to create that community of reading in the classroom as well. And I think through a novel, you can facilitate so much lovely um, talk and dialogue and you know really use that novel as the springboard for much of that um, community building as well Um, also our critical thinking like there's so much that arises in a, in a high quality novel that we can use if we stop and talk about these things and um, for the children's critical thinking development as well and I suppose as well depending on what we're reading we can expose them to such a, a wide uh, variety of genres uh, and text as well and I suppose we could spend all day talking about how we can use novels for comprehension materials uh, or for, for comprehension skill and strategy development as well. And I suppose creating that kind of sense of comprehension as well, as opposed to just seeing it as little isolated skills. Just a few. Yeah, just a few. Just a few good reasons to use them. We know that when it comes to kids and reading, quantity actually matters. Could you just touch on the reason for that and how novels can help? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about this is by going back to the Matthew effect. And I know that's used a lot when we're talking about um, reading achievement, I suppose, in general and literacy achievement. But if we just like scale it back and think about, you know, the children who read the most are going to be the children who have the the most progress in their reading. Children who read even just, you know, at least 20 minutes a day are exposed to 2 million more words by the end of the year than the children who don't. And that has a huge impact on things like vocabulary, their comprehension, their concentration, and many of those complex and higher level academic skills that we're trying to foster on a daily basis in the classroom. And we know as well that the amount of reading that children do outside school is going to vary enormously. Um, you know, our most voracious readers, um, you know, at 10 years of age, read more than 4 million words per year. And that's nearly 100 times more than that of what other readers of the same age do. 
Um, and I suppose that's your, your Matthews effect coming coming back into play. The, the stronger readers may read more words. Um, reading more words makes you a stronger reader. And it's that kind of vicious cycle. And the quality literature, that we, the more quality literature that we can use in the classroom, the better. And that's where our novels come in. You know, we can read many different types of novels across the year. Uh, we can delve into many types of genres, many issues, many emotions, but ultimately many literacy learning opportunities as well. And what about in those earliest grades? So here, what we would call kindergarten, grade one, grade two, grade three, kind of before the, before the audience that you were targeting maybe with your original presentation, is reading novels allowed to the students appropriate, beneficial there? What are your thoughts on that before they can independently read, you know, chapter books, novels on their own? Yeah, absolutely. Like we're not going to launch little women at our five-year-olds, but um, <laughs> that's not to say we can't begin reading uh, novels or chapter books or even little novelettes aloud to younger children. Um, I did it myself when I taught junior infants. Um, I have a five-year-old myself now at home who's definitely not reading conventionally yet but he has a huge interest in books and he's fortunate that I own a lot of books mm -hmm. and that reading together will take priority over many other things such as housework and laundry and I'll, I'm okay with that um, but for his birthday last July for example a friend of mine gifted him a David Walliams book Robodog which is a chapter book it's got minimal illustrations it's a big chunky book and I looked at it and I thought oh that's lovely but I'll put it on the shelf because we won't be looking at that for a while um, but no what drew him to the book actually was something that he associated with some of his picture books and that was the dust jacket so by taking off the dust jacket he was so excited by what he found underneath and was really keen that we read it and we read a chapter a night along with you know other his, his normal picture books and whatnot mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks and he adored it um, and it's just about I suppose how you read it um and I think it's another great way of modeling sophisticated language if they're able to, to listen into it. And I think it's just, you know, it's about the right book. And for me, if you're starting with the younger children, it does need to be something funny, something humorous. Um, and we can build up, you know, we're not going to, to read a, a novel aloud in the first week of school. But, you know, after the first couple of months of plenty of picture books um, and plenty of interesting informational texts and plenty of read-alouds that it's just another text to read aloud. And if we need to, we can beam up some images on our interactive whiteboards or use some posters of characters or whatever, whatever, whatever they need. Because um, obviously each class is different. Well, I'm glad that you approve of the idea of the, the reading aloud, the novels. That is something that I do in my kindergarten class. And I actually started doing it a couple of years ago to try to take advantage of snack time because we do whole group snack time. And certainly at lunch, they get lots of <clears throat> lots of chance to eat and chat together and that sort of thing. But at our morning and afternoon snacks, I thought, I want to try to maximize this time. So I started reading chapter books. And so, of course, at other times of the day, we're still reading those beautiful picture books and, and nonfiction texts and all of that stuff as well. And they're getting an opportunity to see the images. But I find at snack time when I'm just kind of walking around holding a novel and I don't have to be showing everybody all the pictures and that sort of thing, it's helpful. But, you know, a tip that I will give to, to teachers who are listening is, you know, as you were mentioning, choosing the text carefully, because I know where I got to at the end of June, which is when our school year ends. And then in September, I kind of chose a book along the same lines. And then I realized, oh no, these kids are a year younger than the kids I just had. They are not ready for this book yet, right? So it has to be sort of those short, snappy kind of chapters and something that's really going to, to keep them going. But I have found, I found that to be a great strategy to get in some more of that, that reading time with the students. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's all about seizing those informal moments across the day and the snack time. That's a great time for reading aloud, I always find as well. 
Once children should, and I'm saying this with air quotes, should be able to read novels, so sort of that grade range you were targeting, what if reading something at the level of a novel is still too hard for certain children? Is it still okay to give them something like that, challenge it? How do you scaffold? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so there's often that kind of fear of challenging text and that, you know, kind of, I suppose, what's a misconception now that we have to constantly read at that just right level. But if everything is just right, when are we ever going to get to meaningfully apply or practice skills? Um, and I think despite there being plenty of really good research on this, there's there's still a lot of those kind of misconceptions around challenging texts. But, you know, if we as teachers are serious about reading achievement, even for the children who you might think a particular novel is a little bit hard for, we have to look at how we're reading it, what we're reading it, and how we can support or scaffold that child. Um, we need texts that challenge us. We need uh, you know, to, to think of learning to read as much, much more than just being able to, to read words, to make the right sounds. Because ultimately, learning to read has been you know, equipping children with the skills and the strategies to be able to deal with text content and text features as well. And you know, Again, it's going back to, to knowing the text, yes, but also knowing your class and anticipating where they're going to need a little bit of help here and there. Um, when we use complex text, that's what facilitates learning, not just for you know the readers we might be concerned about, but also for our most advanced readers as well. Timothy uh, Shanahan talks about you know that kind of tripping up stage, um, but we're not we, we we as teachers shouldn't fear that the children are going to trip up because. For us, it's it's about preempting the obstacles sometimes and, and planning is key there, but as well, knowing what to do when the, the obstacles maybe do arise. Um, it's much, much better to pitch a text high and provide that support and scaffolding than to lower expectations with, with less demanding texts. Um, most children will learn to read equally well um, with texts that are challenging. Um, but obviously, again, it comes back to what we do with that. And that's where, you know, our differentiation comes into play as well. And, you know, reading a class together or, or reading a class novel together and teaching the children at once with a novel, that can be done with our professional judgment as well, with little tweaks here and there and to su support unique needs where they might arise. And, you know, there's a fear sometimes as well that, you know, challenging text will be, you know, demotivating for children, but there's actually no evidence to, to support that at all. Perhaps maybe if the teacher's not supporting the, the, the child who might need that little bit of, of support, obviously that's going to be demotivating, but, you know, that's our job. That's where we're supposed to jump in and talk as well. You know, talking about the things that are challenging is really, really important. And that's, I think, one of the, the things that I enjoyed the most about working with novels at the senior end of primary school was that, talk that emerged from it and the things you know the little things that we maybe were tripping up on that's what we talked about um and you know that it's okay to to point out the things we don't understand and I suppose that goes down to your classroom culture as well Yes, for sure. So I can remember as a student, and then even in my early years of my career, the novel study was very much uh, everybody has the same book. And I know there was like a central library for the school board and teachers would, you know, get online and try to book their novels to have the kits for the certain number of weeks they needed them and all of that. But then the idea of the whole class reading the same novel sort of seemed to fall out of favor. So is that something that you're still, you know, still kind of recommending or recommending we maybe re-implement? Is, is everybody reading the same novel? And then how, how do you think it's best read? I mean, is the teacher doing some read aloud? Is it just assigned independent reading? How do you feel about audiobooks? Like that sort of thing. What's sort of the best way to go about it? 
Yeah, well, I, like I definitely think we need a mix, but I'm 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 a big advocate for using a class novel, um, and obviously you know connecting as much of our learning as possible to do that, and we're able to do that in Ireland because we teach all the subjects, um, you know I know in different countries we might have specialist teachers for literacy or numeracy or whatever, um. But you'll hear nobody shouting louder about read-alouds than me at times. Um, my student teachers, my family, my colleagues can definitely attest to that. Um, so definitely, yes, the teacher reading aloud from the class novel is crucial. But with our older readers, particularly, you know, from eight and onwards, we have to make sure that we're providing that time for sustained reading. Um, you know, we can change it up. We might have, you know, the children uh, reading independently they might be you know paired or small groups but that um, sustained independent reading is so important because as they become more fluent that listening or learning by listening to reading is is surpassed by um you know reading for meaning um and and they have to you know get to that stage where they're they're learning about grammar and words and knowledge of words and understanding of words through reading as well um and i suppose that whole idea of, of teaching children to read to high, a high standard for the child ultimately to, to move from a novice to an expert reader, that, that all depends on independent reading as well. So we have to make sure um, we're facilitating that. And again, it's going back to you, the teacher, and knowing who needs you. Uh, so if you are assigning, you know, what I used to do was, you know, I would always begin by reading aloud and then I might assign a certain amount of text for the children to read and then I'd come back in and read some more. But again, it's about knowing who needs you while that independent reading's happening. I'm not overcorrecting copies or getting the next bundle of work ready. That it's I'm working with those who do need me or who I might like, you know, let you know, ask them to whisper read for me or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and just a note on the audiobooks as well, like the audiobook industry is booming, and that's proof that read alouds are not dying out or never will. But I think in the classroom we just need to be mindful with the audiobooks too. They can be really useful obviously for independent work or even, you know, a small listening station, but nothing replaces you, the teacher, because the audiobook can't answer your questions. You know, when we do have those tripping moments, the audiobook might necessarily have the same pauses that you, the teacher, might anticipate or want to build in can't give you the chats and the audio audiobook obviously can't read the room either as well thank you you offer some great advice on how to choose novels for the classroom and you know the idea of moving away from as you call them tired texts so can you speak to this the whole idea of you know how to choose texts and maybe avoiding those tired ones yeah um i suppose this comes back from my work as a, a and, and a teacher educator and, and dealing with students who are you know going out in placement a lot and you know been asked to use particular texts uh, or finding it hard to introduce new texts because we have particular trends in Ireland of you know sticking with certain texts for certain age groups or whatever um, and it's not you know it's not just something that happens in Ireland you know Teresa Kremen in the UK has done a lot of work on this as well um, and I suppose there are trends that kind of show that we as teachers can fall into habits and routines that often lead to a reliance on particular texts and that can sometimes lead to stagnant experiences um, as well and I suppose one thing that I want to stress is that it's not a question of quality of books it's sometimes just recognizing our habits and choices and sometimes we're not actually even making choices with our texts we're just reading them because they're what's on the shelf or they're what's on the you know the yearly plan that we've been passed on and 
I suppose it's important to remember that classic texts will always have a place, but the classic texts can't dominate as well. And we do have a professional duty um, to reflect and think about what's dictating our choices and make sure that the texts that we're reading um, I suppose, reflect the diversity of the children in front of us, the world that we live in today, and that we're just, you know, be mindful that we have a responsibility as reading teachers. And I love that phrase that we're, you know, teachers who read and readers who teach. But really, if we're teachers who read, we need to be mindful of children's literature and reading children's literature and know that our knowledge of text influences our teaching, but also influences what we can offer and choose to children as well. And I suppose it's about making mindful uh, text choices. As humans, it, it goes back to, I don't know what the official terms are, but it goes back to like the Stone Age and being uh, afraid of the unknown and sticking with safe things. So our brains do these things where we um, kind of rely on the familiarity principle or it's it's known as the mere exposure effect. So we prefer things that we've been exposed to in the past that are safe. And that actually has an influence on our, our choices as teachers as well. We pick the books that we know. So whether it's, you know, Matilda or The Hungry Caterpillar, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, um, because we know those and we feel that, you know, they're safe choices. But um, I suppose it's just being mindful of that as well, that if we want to motivate children to return to reading, we have to make sure that we're not just picking texts because we enjoyed them as, as children, that we're picking texts that they can relate to and that reflect um, contemporary experiences for them too. But that's not to say we should never read the, the old text, but we can use the familiar to guide our choices as well. So, you know, looking at texts and saying, okay, well, if I enjoyed Matilda, are there other books like Matilda maybe that uh, I could lean into with my class? Yes. And you call those read-alikes, which I think yeah. is really neat. So when you take sort of that classic or maybe something that might be a little more tired that we're just doing because it's safe or, you know, familiar to us, we can think about the read-alikes. So could you give an example maybe of that, like a classic book and what some read-alikes might be? Yeah, like one, one, an obvious one is, you know, Harry Potter. And, and like, I know 1997 is not that long ago. Um, well, for me, it's not. I know some of my students, like they didn't even exist then. Um, but Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, like it's still a really popular text to use in kind of that middle to late stage of primary school. But again, while it's a great text, and I, I've always enjoyed the, the Harry Potter series, um, there are so many other contemporary um fantasy books like that that we can offer to the children as well and, and none better than like the Amari series um, which I know has been doing really well but isn't as common maybe in classrooms um, or like even Matilda that was published in 1988 still a really popular one in the classroom but there are you know there's the Matilda effect um, by Ellie Irving, which was published in 2017, which obviously is a nod to the the original text, but is maybe a little bit more relatable for, for children today. Um, or if we know that children maybe have enjoyed some of those classics, that we can use our teacher knowledge of text to offer similar texts like that. Um, and the same applies to, you know, um, our picture books as well. Just using the familiar to guide our choices. And is there anywhere teachers can go, you know, like, is there a website, is there a reference to kind of find ideas of, you know, instead of using this, here are some ideas you can use? That's a good question. I think, you know, the, the teacher social media space can be a, a great place to start. There's no one set list, but I suppose there's lots. What I would do, obviously, I read a lot of children's literature myself, Um but what I would do is t I tend to not look so much at what's in the charts, the, the children's literature charts, because 
what we find is that again it's a lot of the tired text dominating uh, the charts or like what was a real bugbear for me was like for for almost a year here in Ireland Peppa Pig goes to Ireland was like the top selling children's book so you know no offense to Peppa there are other great books out there but I think it's about if you link in with the the UK or the reading for pleasure uh, resources from um the Open University um they have such an amazing bank of materials that are free to access for teachers um there are educators on there, like I mentioned, Teresa Kremen and John Bedell, who are constantly sharing great literature. And there's um, the CLPE uh, work as well over in the UK, where they, they do studies every year on, on, you know, the increasing diversity within texts. And, you know, they list lots of, of um, contemporary texts as well. Um, I find that's really, really useful. And even just, um, I suppose, keeping an eye on hashtags. Um, like in Ireland, we have a great hashtag at the moment, Discover Irish Kids Books, where we're you know seeing a great drive for kind of making Irish children's literature a little bit more known and giving it a better space online um, and, and things like the you know hashtag read aloud read aloud revival those types of, of hashtags you find all sorts of amazing literature there too and talking to your teacher friends yes absolutely what would you say is the value in using um, novels or complete texts as opposed to extracts? Because obviously you could expose kids to you know, you know more authors and more um, you know different aspects if you're using extracts. But I know that you you feel strongly that there's a place for whole novels, and why is that? Yeah, there's always like it's it's fine to use extracts every so often, but once that extracts aren't the only thing that children are reading, and I I, I know that's something I get up on my high horse about a lot, but there's a real kind of preponderance of reading anthologies that kind of dominate the texts that are used, particularly in Irish classrooms. Um, I can't speak to everywhere, but I know it's it's kind of commonplace uh, globally. You know, we have these books for the senior end of, of school, which have snippets or extracts, kind of decontextualized chunks of text. And while they're fine and they won't harm, you know, your, your most capable readers, it's actually a, a kind of a frustrating approach for shared reading and reading instruction. And Michael Lockwood, a uh, uh, literacy researcher in the UK, you know, argues that there's this kind of worrying case of extractitis, which is spreading rapidly because we're rearing our, our older primary readers on this diet of text fragments, um, as opposed to actually giving them the chance to experience a beginning and an end of a text. Because sometimes, you know, if you don't have those maybe finely developed inference skills and, and those higher levels of, uh, of compre uh, comprehension, it can be quite challenging to just launch into reading something when you don't have the beginning or you don't get the satisfaction of the end as well. And like we want readers to experience that feeling, you know, of hoping your book will never end. Um, and a series of extracts are certainly not going to afford that kind of emotional connection. Um, and reading then, you know, can become something that we associate more as work or a chore and more likely to kind of feel flat and boring or a little bit vapid because there's no incentive to return to it. It's that kind of one and done approach. Whereas I would argue that, you know, reading a novel is an experience. And if you're reading it from start to, uh, to finish, you're unable to gain a deeper understanding of characters, how they change, how we mightn't like them. You know, think of Professor Snape. <laughs> um, we all kind of had assumptions about him and then it changed completely right at the very end. Um, children are more likely to, you know, to become invested and to persevere what's happening next or what might happen next. You know, when we give them the chance to actually see what the next is. Um, 
it opens them up to all sorts of things like plotting and links and you know links between opening and endings that you know you kind of struggle to create if you don't have the examples there and we want the children to get to that stage where you, where they're using the reading experiences to inspire their own writing too and also when we're reading texts you know whole texts like a novel we're giving them a chance to you know gently be introduced to, to lovely sophisticated vocabulary but in a way that the words are made clearer and more memorable because we're seeing their contextual use you know over the course of a, a full text. In terms of responding to these novels that we are reading what are some examples and non-examples of meaningful response tasks for example I know you have mentioned maybe cutting back on the dioramas and, and that sort of thing if we want meaningful responses so um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, again, I suppose this goes back to trying to use our time as widely as possible or as wisely as possible. And I know in Ireland, we don't have a minute to waste when it comes to our, our, our literacy instructional time. We don't have a very big literacy block. It's quite tight. Uh, and if we think about how broad that continuum of literacy skills is, we really... Um, we have to be careful with what we're doing. And while things like dioramas, character sketches, cover sketches, oh, the dreaded chapter summary, they like they're nice. They're not harming anyone, but not necessarily the best use of our time. Um, so I would be encouraging you know, a lot more dialogue and um, talking about what we've just read, looking at our, our, our chapters and, and, you know, seeing where the opportunities are for meaningful word study and vocabulary learning. And close reading and sustained reading as well. You know, going back and reading things, rereading paragraphs where we need to, um, and maybe having specific tasks for that. And and I suppose meaningful opportunities for connection making and visualizing. Um, but thinking about those more complex skills, like being able to, you know, anticipate, uh, think retrospectively, and evaluate as well. And those are things that we can't just do by you know building a diorama and you know spending two weeks painting it and sculpting and so on again nice but I don't know if we have time for that no and I mean and if you are also the art teacher and maybe yeah. that's a little piece of your art that's great but I, I totally see your point about using that literacy block for for valuable literacy mm -hmm. instruction this is kind of related to what I just asked but I again I can remember with these classic novel studies the chapter questions right like read chapter one and here's your chapter one questions read chapter two here are the chapter two questions what, you know, how can we best um, like support comprehension or also even the, the piece of assessing comprehension? Like what kind of products can we be, can we be asking for? We don't want those chapter questions anymore, I'm assuming the, the same way as maybe I did them when I was a kid. Yeah, because we can do a lot of those orally. Like that's what we're, you know, what can be the, the starting point for our dialogue. And I suppose when we think about those kind of, even the, the recount, the summary questions, they're really very, um, micro or, or, or they fall into that kind of stage of, of micro processes and and when we when we think about building meaning and building comprehension there's a whole lot of processes of meaning that we need to consider and we're often very good and and you know at teaching those micro processes they don't take much to master the children generally grasp them quite quickly and i find a lot of those kind of vapid uh, exercises or you know comprehension exercises or what we see labeled as comprehension exercises often focus on those micro and nothing much else um you know i tell my students that they're kind of the read and regurgitate type exercises there's not a whole lot more to them and we need to be thinking about the other processes like integrative processes like you know being able to integrate ideas between sentences and knowing how 
sentences connect or, or you know, passages connect in text. Thinking about the metacognitive uh, side of things, you know, being able to monitor their understanding. You know, did I understand what I was reading? What else do I need to do to help me with this? And the elaborative side of things, which is a tricky one where they're, you know, bringing their prior knowledge and their inferencing together. Um, you know, what do I know already that helps uh, to connect to what I'm reading? And again, going towards those macro processes, their overall understanding as well and, and thinking about, you know, not just what I understand about this, but what exactly was the author trying to get me to understand or what's the author pointing to here? What am I taking away from this? Um, when it comes to kind of comprehension instruction around text as well, I always recommend um, looking at what the research is telling us and even recently uh, I think it was 2021 we had an amazing article by um, Nell Duke, Alessandra Ward I think and David Pearson on the the science of the science of reading of comprehension the science of reading comprehension instruction I think it was called and within that they created this really simple little table with six points around effective comprehension instruction um you know, that comprehension instruction should begin early, that it's important that we link it to teaching text structures and text features, uh, which I'm pretty sure I mentioned already, um, that we link it to vocabulary and knowledge building, that strategy instruction is important, but obviously isn't the only thing. It can support our, 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 our reading comprehension. Um, but it also lists that we need to think about, you know, volume reading, which ties in nicely with novels, with text discussion and analysis, which obviously is you know to do with more dialogue and actually close reading and deep diving into text, but also writing about uh, what we're reading as well. And that's not just answering those kind of little questions. Um, and also it talks about the importance of instructional practices that um, kindle motivation and how they feed into comprehension as well. And I feel like what I encourage teachers to do and what I, I, I do with my student teachers is that we take that model, I just pull it out into a little table and we look at, you know, maybe one of those little kind of flat comprehension exercises and then we look at a novel that we've been studying and see how each of those uh, six components can be fulfilled or maybe aren't fulfilled and then what we do is we, we pull it out and we can use that for literally any text you know we can use it for a picture book we can use it for an informational text or um, a, a chapter book or a novel as well and I find it's a really useful um, simple model that teachers can use to actually plan um, meaningfully for, for comprehension instruction and I think as well with comprehension um, we can't underestimate that kind of importance of just rereading something. It, nobody's going to die because we have to reread a paragraph just to actually dive a little bit deeper. We've all had that experience where we've been reading something, and I certainly can relate to it with academic literature, where you read through a paragraph and you just think, does it, what what did I just read? Uh, and that's the case for a lot of the children when they're reading these more complex texts as well. So just going back over and reading something together again and talking about it to make sure that, you know, we're giving them that chance for that sustained analysis of something um, and and helping them see it as normal to, to, to reread and to that, you know, we as adults, you know, or, you know, we as fluent readers, do things like that as well that it's normal to, to 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 check for meaning and to check our understanding in your presentation that you did you talked about the idea of using a novel as an anchor text that can then be supported by other texts i really like this idea can you talk about that a little bit please 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it's pretty commonplace to use maybe a picture book in, in the younger years as an anchor text. And really, you know, we can do the exact same with a novel and a whole lot more. And again, I suppose that's going back to, you know, working with student teachers and helping them show how that they contextualize a lot of their instruction by putting a text at the center and letting that be the springboard for learning. Um, for me, just making something an anchor text means that we're helping uh, children, you know, deeply engage with whatever the idea of that text is, but connect it to other things as well. You know, we're not really me meant to read things in complete isolation. You know, we hear so much about that kind of importance of intertextuality. So, for example, if I was reading a, a text like, you know, the boy at the back of the class, and that was my anchor text, I would also make sure that I was reading uh, that's you know about um, a, a, a child it's got a fabulous twist in the tale um, it's about a child who, who joins a, a school in the UK having been in a refugee camp for a while and life has been quite uh, traumatic but then we would obviously read other texts about those types of experiences as well so I might, might read you know the, the picture book The Journey by Francesca Senna um, but then I might also read some poetry about migration or refugees I might read um, some informational texts but then I might read another novel afterwards as well maybe a shorter one that gives the children that chance to transfer the learning across as well but I suppose it's about thinking about their their literacy learning and their reading um instruction in a much broader way as opposed to that's just something that happens over here but also you know it's actually something that's connected to everything else that we're doing as well it's anchoring the learning I suppose and I love that idea too of still incorporating picture books, even in those older grades as well, right? And I mean, picture books, I think sometimes people forget the rich language and the ideas that can still be in those that can benefit older readers, you know, compared to maybe like an early reader chapter book, which is going to be just written more for decodability. And it's pretty simple, you know, reading a picture book with these older children is, uh, is still a really rich thing to do. So I, I really like that idea of kind of that novel as an anchor and then incorporating other types of text. You also have talked about this really neat idea called a book tasting. So can you tell us what is a book tasting, why we would do that, and how to maybe run one in our own classrooms? Yeah. Now, I cannot claim the idea for book tastings. Uh, I don't know where I came across it. Um, it's been something that I've been doing for, for years as a teacher myself. Um, it's highly possible that I, I probably came across it through the the um, reading for pleasure resources from the UK again. But ultimately, it's exactly was what it says it is. It's um, hosting a book tasting in your classroom where you offer loads of books for the children. Um, you can't you can set the room up like a little cafe or a restaurant if you want. You know, some people do Starbucks, um, where it's like a little coffee shop. I kind of I, I lean into the book buffet model, um, and you know, with my Italian hair. Heritage, I play some nice Italian themed music um, and uh, yeah you can do it with any types of text uh, I tend to start with the you know picture books because you know the children can read from start to finish uh, I've used this with all age groups you know you set your intentions or whatever you know that we're going to read for maybe 30 40 minutes the whole idea is that you just enjoy your text but obviously if you want you can set some little tasks for the children as well that they might record the name of the books that they enjoyed or you know a friend that they might like to recommend it to and um, with the older children 
it was a nice way as well of introducing novels or getting them interested in maybe novels that they might choose themselves to borrow and read so we would do you know a first chapter Friday every so often where they would or a first chapter feast where they would have a look at some novels read the first chapter decide if they wanted to keep it or maybe look for another one um again it's just about celebrating literature um celebrating reading it feeds into that lovely kind of culture of reading in the classroom and i can honestly say once you do one the children will constantly remind you and ask you to do another one just as my student teachers do as well um, we can map it to many of our, you know, our, our learning outcomes for, you know, well, what we have as the primary language curriculum over here. Um, but again, it's promoting and facilitating, you know, that lovely sustained reading experience as well. If you really want to think about it and tweak it, you know, you can make it all around a theme. You know, if you were you know, maybe doing a unit of work on the sea, then all your books could be about the sea and sea animals and sea life and so on, or maybe famous explorers. Um, I suppose what I like about it as well is that it's playful, it's interactive, it's dialogic, it's fun, but ultimately it gets um, books into the hands of children. Um, and, you know, you can set the scene with little tablecloths and place settings and you know, we have battery powered candles, which we light every so often. Um, it all depends on, on, on how, how into it you want to go. On my website, I do have uh, Getting to Grips with Book Tastings, which is just a little blog post detailing how it works and all the, the little placemats and things are there free to download if if anybody's interested this has been so fantastic to hear you talk all about this it's almost making me wish I were in an older grade right now because I feel like yes I've got my little chapter book read alouds at, at snack time but I'm thinking about all these amazing things we can uh, we can do with novels to support our students before I let you go what are you working on now where can we find you let us know um well, yeah, well, I'm supposed to be finishing my, my, my data collection at the moment. That's ongoing. Uh, hoping to wrap that up soon. But I am quite active on, on social media, um, Instagram mainly. You can find me at uh, Clara Maria Fiorentini. I am on X as well. It's just Fiorentini underscore CM. My, you know, as, as you found me, Kate, it was through a webinar. I, I do plenty of webinars. Um, I think that was one of the perks of the pandemic that the webinar model really took off, which has just helped a lot with accessible CPD, Especially, you know, in Ireland, a lot of our teachers are in quite remote areas and, you know, getting out to courses in the evening aren't always, uh, you know, it isn't always straightforward. Um, so I have some webinars coming up for 2024 and um, dates will be released soon enough and I'll share those on my on my social media on my website as well. Um, probably most excitingly for me is that I'm the incoming president of the Literacy Association of Ireland this year, um, which is a huge honour. Um, and, you know, we're always trying to increase our reach. You know, we've been around for, for 50 years, almost. Um, you can find, you know, everything about the Literacy Association of Ireland uh, via the website at literacyireland.com. We have a Twitter and an Instagram page as well. And generally we'll have, you know, a few webinars or fireside chats coming up. But I suppose our main event is that we have a conference every November and we do like um, visitors. And we do tend to have people who will, will travel across various ponds to, to join us. Um, so we can keep an eye, an eye out for that and any coverage of that too um, in, in the late spring. And that's really it, Kate. Thank you so much. Amazing. So Clara Maria Fiorentini, thank you so much for being with us talking about the novel in the classroom. We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Show notes for this episode with all the links and information you need can be found at podcast.idaontario.com. And you have been listening to season two, episode seven with Clara Fiorentini. Now it's time for that typical end of the podcast call to action. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Reading Road Trip, we'd love it if you could rate and or review it in your podcast app, as this is extremely helpful for a growing podcast. And of course, we welcome any social media love you feel inspired to spread as well. Feel free to tag IDA Ontario and me. My handle is at thismumloves on Twitter and Facebook and at katethismumloves on Instagram. And in case you haven't seen it, we are randomly choosing listeners who share their episode takeaways on Twitter, or yes, I know I'm supposed to call it X, and sending them Reading Road Trip stickers too. Make sure you're following the Reading Road Trip podcast in your app and watch for new episodes dropping every Monday. We couldn't bring Reading Road Trip to you without behind-the-scenes support from Caitlin Hanna, Brittany Haynes, and Melinda Jones at IDA Ontario. If you're enjoying Reading Road Trip, please consider making a donation to IDA Ontario, a volunteer-run charity that depends on donations to do our work supporting educators and families. I'm Kate Wynn, and along with my co-producer Una Malcolm, we hope this episode of Reading Road Trip has made your path to evidence-based literacy instruction just a little bit clearer and a lot more fun. Join us next time when we bring another fabulous guest along for the ride on Reading Road Trip.